Hey folks, welcome to a very special standalone episode of the Battles of the First World War podcast. Uh, during my recent trip to France, my crew and I had the most wonderful experience when we visited Mr. Andy Robertshaw and Mr. Colin Wynn and their archaeological dig team out at the Hawthorne Crater on the Somme. How we met the people of the Hawthorne Crater Association will be told in the interview that follows. It was just a stunningly amazing day amongst so many amazing days out there in the Argonne and on the Somme. For many years, the Hawthorne Crater has sat in relative obscurity on the Somme battlefield. It has been overgrown with trees and brush, and it has remained enough off the beaten path that most tourists have bypassed it altogether. The Hawthorne Crater Association is changing that. Through limited clearance of diseased trees and careful archaeological digs conducted with the enthusiastic support of the people of nearby Beaumont Amel village, Mr. Robert Shaw, Mr. Wynn, and several others are bringing the story of the crater and the men who lived in it, fought in it, and died in it back to life. As I will say at the end of the interview, this is not just digging in the earth looking for pieces of metal from the Battle of the Somme. It is so much more than that, as you will hear. And to be clear, no archaeological dig is just digging in the dirt. It's really important and fascinating stuff. Due to some technical difficulties, Mr. Robertshaw was unable to join us. The VoIP connection also tended to be a bit wobbly at times, but I think overall you'll be able to understand things pretty clearly. Links to the Hawthorne Crater Association will be provided in the episode notes and on the website, Facebook, and Twitter pages. Please follow them and their work, and if possible, please consider supporting their work as well. I hope you enjoy this little standalone interview with Mr. Colin Wynn of the Hawthorne Crater Association. All right, folks, so uh, this is Mike, Battles of the First World War podcast, and I am here with Mr. Colin Wynn of the Hawthorne Crater Association. Uh, hopefully, we will be joined by uh, Mr. Andy Robertshaw, uh, also of the Hawthorne Crater Association and also of 8,000 Foot Media, uh, who was on the show uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, but right now, it's uh, just Mr. Wynn and myself. Uh, Mr. Wynn, uh, if you would, um, please go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us what, what you do. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a retired weapons engineer. I worked arms manufacturer for nearly 30 years. And I retired, I was researching my father's military mm -hmm. history. And then I realized that I knew nothing about my grandfather, so I researched him. That led me down the path of the First World War. And through various chance meetings along that route, uh, people discovered that I got a wide knowledge base of weapon systems and particularly explosive systems. And I became very interested in the underground war, the tunnel wars and other associated underground workings that the Royal Engineers were doing. And kind of the last 12 years, I've, I've specialised in that. And very fortunately, I'm now in a situation where people are coming to me to look at underground workings and try and either resurrect them and, and sort of research them 
or explain them. Uh, and for me, it's, a, it's an honor and it's a great feeling. And it's really nice that I get to spend a lot of time professionally working on these sites and meeting some great people who come along to visit and to work. And it's one of life's pleasures for me. Oh, that's, that's just so awesome. Um, so I, I should have done this already, but I have to give the, the background for how this interview came about. So just a couple of weeks ago, um, I was in France um, with some very good friends, uh, my stepson Lee, uh, my buddy Chuck, um, and new friends, Clint of the MindShift podcast and his sister, Valerie. So Clint um, was the man. He was the one who suggested we go get coffee in Ocean Villas, known to the French as Auchanvier, I believe. Um, so while we were there getting coffee, I happened to look over to my right and I see uh, Andy Robertshaw st standing there, literally standing two feet away from me. Um, so I introduced myself to him, said he had been on my podcast just a couple months before. Um, and we were invited out to the Hawthorne Crater, which um, Mr. Wynn, he's going to tell us a lot more about here in a minute, so I won't say anything else. But, um, but we were invited out here. And then we step outside, and Mr. Wynn is outside. And we get into a conversation, and both Mr. Wynn and Mr. Robertshaw are like, hey, come on out and join us and we'll, we'll take you through the entire site. So you can best believe that we were hot on their tails as they took off. So it was just, a, just an amazing experience. Um, so let me, that's kind of like a good lead in to the next question, which is a, a rare event for me. Um, so what is the Hawthorne Creator Association and how did it come about? Uh, well, it, it's really simple. Um, most of the major battle sites on the Western Front have got people who look after them. You look at Loch Nagar Crater and places like that, they have an association that, that kind of looks after them. Quite a few of them are under British ownership. But the Hawthorne Crater has been neglected is the wrong word, but it's, it's kind of been overlooked because it's in an awkward spot. It's on the top of a hill. It's, in a, it's slightly off the beaten track. And it's always had slightly difficult areas around it because there are five different owners of the land. But eventually, um, somebody tried to buy it a few years ago and that failed. But eventually, there was enough interest with um, a guy called Nigel Fagg. He's a British guy who lives in France. And one or two others who got talking to the mayor of the village and one or two of the farmers and landowners. And it actually became evident that there was a great deal of interest in doing something about the crater and its apparent anonymity because people were going up there and it was so overgrown with trees and bushes and it was very difficult to see it and it's such an iconic and important spot that slowly the idea of this association grew and then the French suggested that we actually make it official and create a French registered association which gives you certain powers you can open a bank account for instance to because you need to fund things you can apply to the archaeological service in france to for permission to explore and it opens doors for us so slowly we got a group of like-minded people and we created this association there is a, a kind of committee but it's not a rigid committee but we're very pleased that it's over half of the members are French, and that's almost unheard of. In all these projects, it's usually driven by the British guys with the French going, yeah, okay, yeah. Because 
what unfortunately what happens in France, a lot of the sites, the farmers, quite frankly, they've had enough of it. You know, they've had people marching all over their land for the last hundred years, digging stuff up, and they're, they're pretty fed up with it in some areas. But we're very lucky that the, the, the village of Beaumont-Hamel, which is just down the road, are the exact opposite. And they're now as obsessed as we are because they didn't know the history in detail. They knew there was obviously big battles there. They knew about the crater. They knew they've got, they're surrounded by trenches. But they really didn't know much about it. And it's been great for us as an association to sit down with these guys, get to know them, drink wine with them, chat with them, um, and fill them in. And they've taught us a lot. We've learned so much. So the association started very small and it's now grown. Membership is growing and it's actually working really well. And we managed to get one of the major universities in, in England in, interested in the project as well. And they've now come on board with all their research facilities, all their laboratory work that they can do for us, which I'll touch on later. Um, and it's actually become really, really good now. And we're, we're so pleased with it. Oh, wow. Oh, that's, that's, that's an amazing, amazing development of like becoming an association and then um, the, the, the camaraderie with, with the French locals yeah. and everything. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it is. Oh. And we've also got the fact that we've got um, internationally known figures like Andy involved, and that's given a lot more credence to the project as well. The one thing we had to sort of battle against was a lot of people thought, oh, it's just another one of Andy's projects. It's not. This is a multinational project. It's completely different. And it's almost wow. under French management, which is really cool as far as we're concerned. Yeah, no, I can, I can understand that. Oh, that's awesome. Now, getting getting into the Hawthorne craters, um, I, I hope you don't mind if I tell people, but there's there's actually two craters there. There are. Um, and can you describe to, to listeners um, the, the difference between the first and the second craters? Sure, yeah. Um, the first one uh, was blown on the 1st of July, 1916. And the importance of the crater is it's the very mm -hmm. first action of the Battle of the Somme. Everything else started at 7.30, but that crater went off at 7.20 in the morning. And it was designed to blow out the Hawthorne Redoubt, which is a fortified ring of trenches on the top of the hill. If you think of the front line, it's much like um, an English castle or a Roman fort. You have a wall, then you have a turret, mm -hmm. which is a redoubt. Then you have a wall, which is a trench. Then you have another turret, which is another redoubt. Mm -hmm. So you need to take those strong points out. So they took the decision to put mm -hmm. 40,000 pounds of high explosive under that redoubt. And they dug a 1,050 feet long tunnel, 81 feet underground, and placed the charges down there. Wow. Now... They didn't need 41,000 pounds. They blew it as what they call an overcharge. They put more explosive in than they needed. And the reason for that is because the infantry were going to advance up to the crater. Now, with a normal charge, you'd end up with a big lip, nine meters high. And your infantry are over that. So they took the decision to overcharge it, which blew the spoil yep. further. So it spread it thinner, and it made the incline more gentle and easier to climb. So that was the whole reason for the overcharge. And you ended up with this huge elliptical crater, some 65 feet deep, and at its widest point, nearly 200 feet across. 
It's a big hole. Now, the attack then on that day failed. And five months later, the decision was taken. And this is the only time it's ever happened on a large mine to re-blow the mine. So on the 13th of November, they dug an extra leg off the same tunnel and placed another £30,000 charge about 100 feet from the original one. Now, they only put 30000 because they didn't need to overcharge it because they'd already got that gentle slope. So the next one could be a standard charge. And that blew at 3.30 in the morning. They learned a lesson, don't do it in daylight, give your soldiers a chance, and don't hold the infantry back while the debris falls to ground. Get them moving before the debris has, has landed because it only takes a minute. Originally, they thought it would take 10 or 15 minutes for all yep. the debris to land, and it didn't. It took a minute. So the lessons were learned from the first attack, and the second attack was entitled. The crater was taken, the trenches were taken, and then the village was taken, and the advance moved, the, the advance moved on really quickly on that second. It was a very successful infantry attack, which kind of made up the first one, really. So that's the essential difference between the two. They're different types of charges, and they gave a different result. What's particularly interesting for me is that the second crater, the formation of it, is not as pure as you'd expect. You normally expect a crater to be, if you like, a cone, an inverted cone. But because you've blown it next to a crater, you've got no resistance on one side. So the second crater is in a really interesting way. And all the, the wall, if you like, between the craters are blown across the base of the first crater. And it's unique. There's nowhere else like it. So that, that's essentially the difference between the two. You know, they are, they're, they're completely separate animals. You know, they have their own features and their own characteristics, which for, from somebody who's passionate about war, mm -hmm. it's such an honor to work on this side. It really is. And how, how is it again that, that the, um, the Royal Engineers could use the same tunnel again? Well, we, when you place a charge, um, you're sure that the charge goes, the, the force from that charge going off goes where you want it to go. You want it to go up. So if you dig a tunnel and you don't block that tunnel, some of the explosive force will take the easy way and it'll come down the tunnel. So they did a thing called tamping. And at Hawthorne, they put 40 feet of filled sandbags, which is about 2,000 sandbags, into the tunnel by hand. And these tunnels are not big. They're only four foot six mm -hmm. inch high and two foot six inch wide. They're not, you know, they're not huge. Then they leave a 20-foot air gap, and then they put another 1,000 sandbags in another 20-foot tamp behind that. So when the explosion mm -hmm. goes off, the force tries to come down the tunnel. The, the sandbags prevent it, and the air gap acts as a shock absorber. So 60 feet back wow. down the tunnel, there's no damage to the tunnel whatsoever. It's, it's a really clever technology. But it's 4,000 years old. It's not new. <laughs> Wow. And, and again, we, we were talking before we started recording, but is the Somme kind of similar to what we were talking about, the Valcois, like yes. it's chalk? It is. Um, soil? Okay. The Somme tunnels are much easier to work in. Uh, they weren't as easy to dig in some cases, but they are preserved better than the ones up in Flanders around Belgium because they're dug in clay and it's very wet and, and every tunnel had to be lined, not Propped but lined with with almost like box sections, but on the Somme, none of the tunnels are propped. None of them. There are no supports in any of the tunnels. They're naturally dug, arched top like a church window, so they're self-support. 
and they're still in amazing condition. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've walked in a few of them now, and they are incredible. Oh, my God, that's that's just stunning that even even after a century, they're, they're still in. Still there. Wow. And everything they left is still there. That's wow. They just walked away. After they'd blown it, they had no further use for it, so they walked away. Whatever was down there is still down there. So there's food tins, there's soldiers' equipment, there's, there's mining equipment. There's everything you could think of was just, just wow. left, walked away. Wow. Which is incredible. Yeah, it is amazing. And now, I um, speaking of, of the craters and the, the explosions and the, the tamping the tunnels and everything, now you, you explained something to us during our visit was – the explosive used was, let me see if I've got this right. It was aminol, not aminol, A-L. Yeah, A-L at the end. And now what I just said was used for something else entirely, right? It's a common mistake, and I've heard it said in places where it's really made, I've had to control myself. Aminol is... An ammonium nitrate-based explosive, and it gets its name from ammonium nitrate and powdered aluminium, which is put into it, or as you would say, powdered aluminium. I know you spell it different, so it's fine. So this is part of the mix, and the powdered metal is in there as a, a fast initiator. It burns at a very high temperature, and it keeps the explosion going. We're talking milliseconds, microseconds. Aminol is... Mm-hmm. A drug used in mental institutions <laughs> to repress sexual urges. So £40,000 of aminol, it's not going to do you any good, but it won't kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> aminol will. Yeah, I imagine, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I will never. Yeah. That when is I something that I will never. Aminol. I will never get that wrong again. So. <laughs> oh my goodness uh so um what what ar- archaeological work is going on at the crater right now um like when, when you when we were there a couple weeks ago and then and then afterwards right um we had when you arrived we only had the permit from the french government to archaeologically dig for a matter of days so we were very early stages and mm-hmm. Our lead archaeologist, a chap called Dane Wright, who's quite frankly a genius, had identified certain things even before he'd put a spade in the ground. He said, this here is really interesting, and over here is really interesting, and I'm just looking at it. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Show me a tunnel, I know what I'm talking about. But I took his word for it. We all took his word for it. And in the end, we opened up two areas of the crater lip. Now, it's the lip we're interested in. Uh, and these are the two that you saw. One of them turned out to be what appears to be a forward observation post, German forward observation post. It had several communication cables leading into it, and it was sighted right in the centre of the crater, looking straight down the valley oh. to the British trenches. If you were studying there with a periscope, because remember, you never show your head, otherwise you won't have one. Right, correct. A periscope, the view would have been incredible. Unmolested view straight down to the British trenches. The trees that are up there now, they didn't exist in 1916. There were no trees there at all. But the other one, which was to the right of that, we weren't sure what it was. Mm-hmm. 
And we, we opened it up thinking it would be another forward observation post or perhaps even a gun position. It actually turned out to be a trench. Oh, really? Yeah. And even more incredible, it appears that it's a British trench. Oh. We had a wonderful guy who owns a company called UAV Dynamics turned up. And he did some aerial scans with some of the most incredible equipment I've ever seen. And he did it for nothing. He didn't want any payment at all. He wanted to prove his system. Really? And he did um, ultraviolet, X-ray, um, chemical analysis from above, how spectrometry, I believe it's called, all these different scans. And all that data is at the moment being post-processed in Switzerland. And we're expecting the results next week. But he sent us some preliminary results, and it clearly shows a trench that's been cut into the side exactly where Dane suggested there's something, and it runs across the field wow. to where there's a collapse in the field, which appears to be that trench that's collapsed and because of the dry weather, and it's now showing itself. It's never been seen before. Nobody knew it was there. It's wow. not on any maps, but it is clearly a British trench. And if this is what we're going to find after the first day's digging, Heaven only knows what we're going to find a year down the line. And it's really exciting. So what we've done now in common with all archaeological sites, when you leave the site, you never leave your workings exposed. So we carefully line the whole working with um, a breathable membrane sheeting and okay. you backfill them to protect them. You don't want the weather wearing the edges away or destroying them because the wind and the rain will okay. erode it so quickly. So you backfill it. And what the sheeting does is it means when you go back you will be able to open that work up again within a day it's no work at all you just work down to the sheeting and stop pull the sheeting away there's your dig so that's where we are with that but we've also identified another edge close to where the pathway you walked up to meters wow there's a very big position there and we're not quite sure yeah it's huge about 20 feet long according to dave so we're looking the next digs will be to look at that really and very slowly we intend to put the picture of the whole crater lip together um and, and we are focusing uh on the lip specific reasons uh, we'll go into those in a bit but it is before we look at the bottom of the crater we need to sort out what happened at the top i'm just continually impressed by i mean i i knew about the hawthorne crater i mean i know you know the the explosion that malins recorded but now, with speaking with you and uh, Mr. Robert Shaw, there's there's history going on. There's archaeology. There's mm. science, like on a scale that I've never seen applied. Um, there's uh, technology being used. There's there's knowledge and good old intuition. Like it's this is absolutely fascinating. One of the things that the the university did for us they brought along two guys neil and julian and they're chemists and they took soil samples from in front of the crater in the field and they analyzed this and they found a general spread of um, pollution from ammonal but they also found arcs of fire of pollution from cordite and black powder all oh. arms fire. Now, you would never have found that any other way. And this is the depth wow. of research that we can now do with these guys on board. And they've just done a whole series of more tests, seeing how far this spread of pollution goes, how it's affected root growth, etc. 
because we know that the crops that are grown on the Somme have changed since the battle because the acidity of the soil has changed. Farmers have told us they've had to change what they grow in certain areas. And people say, it's a byproduct of the war that we don't think about. But these guys are in all these little bits of this jigsaw together and hopefully a few years down the line we'll end up with a very nice picture of the whole thing exactly as wow as it happened that that um was stunning to me too was um hearing how the battle of the Somme affected the the soil i mean you know naturally you think like well of course like the the artillery you know churns the soil and and you, i thought maybe the depth of it was some of that chalky subsoil um was now up near the surface and that and but that's like the the limit of what i thought but to hear how yeah so, so that's the physical disturbance yeah but there's a chemical disturbance as well because when your shell explodes as it hits the ground you're putting chemicals non-natural chemicals into that ground right they don't go away in fact when it rains they get spread further so you like you like you're spreading the stain of, 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 on the uh. ground and that has a, an effect even today wow that's just that's fascinating um also how how you were talking about how foxes and badgers i believe do not like the area but rabbits they don't like it they've moved out (laughs) they've simply moved out which is why the rabbits are so prevalent there's no predators there now so all the rabbit warrens and burrows that you see inside of one of the craters there's no opposition to those rabbits now there are no foxes there so that's another effect you could, you could go on for hours about flora and fauna changes before, during, and after battle. You know, it, 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 it's a fascinating subject, but it's a byproduct of that explosion. Wow, that's just fascinating. Fascinating. And now you, you were talking about a little bit about this earlier. Um, the, the crater, it's the, it's the kind of a converging point of land ownership for like five different people, right? <laughs> um, and how how do they all feel about this project overall? And and I you know you um well, uh, <laughs> you tell me as, as no, much as you want to tell. The reason for the five landowners is that the land is still based on an on almost medieval feudal system, and people would own small parcels of fields dotted about. Um, and unfortunately, five people's land converges mm-hmm. right where the Hawthorne Redoubt was. Uh, once we found this out, and we had to employ a French lawyer wow. and a French surveyor who charged us an absolute fortune um, to delineate the land, and then we had to get in touch with the guy who owned the land, and it turns <laughs> out that three of them are brothers, oh. and two of them don't speak to the other. No, oh. <laughs> so, oh. it's a family bicker. <laughs> Why? But anyway, the mayor oh. and, a, and a wonderful guy called Francis, um, they listened to us. And they kind of got it straight away. And Francis, in particular, uh, has done enormous amount of work within the village to convince the other landowners that this is a valid project. It's not just a bunch of idiots turning up, going to dig around for a few days and disappear. This is long term and it will have benefits for the village. Very slowly, they started to come round. Now, Mm -hmm. even the one they don't talk to, a chap called Omiel, is completely on board with it and they signed the documents without any mm-hmm. coercion whatsoever they've been absolutely brilliant oh. and they fell in line with it they're right behind us now it's sober for us that's awesome that's that's so so cool to hear so you guys are not only um 
if I may, you guys are not only like conducting an archaeological dig, you're also bringing families back together. So that's... <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, but certainly they have to speak to each other. <laughs> which, which is a first. <laughs> oh, so um, so the, the 1st of July, the, the crater is blown. The, the British attack there fails. Um, Germans retained possession of the crater throughout much of the Battle of the Palm until the end when the, the second um, crater is blown. Um, so that so the Germans maintain that as as a new redoubt or or no? Yeah. Um, the reason that we were so passionate about getting permission to explore this crater is because it is the only large crater that was occupied, for want of a better word, and used mm -hmm. for a prolonged period. Some of the other craters were used for a couple of days, then the battlefront moved on and they were forgotten. Mm -hmm. Hawthorne, they occupied it for five months. Wow. And in those five months, they turned it... We, in effect, we didn't make a crater. We gave them a fortress. And they took full wow. advantage. They put in positions, they put in dugouts, they put in any manner of things. And they just used what we'd given them. Wow. And that's why Hawthorne is unique. Not only is it blown twice, but it was actually occupied. And we have um, a guy in Germany, uh, and also an American guy, Ralph Whitehead, who's written a book called The Other Side of the White. The third volume's just come out, all about the, Ger the German perspective of the battle. Okay. And they're doing some really interesting work in the German military records office about that five-month period. So we're hoping oh. that very soon we'll have some documents appearing out the archives that will detail some of this stuff for us. Because we can only read what's on the ground. You know, we can look at it and say, mm -hmm. this, this, and this happened, is, was here. But who it was dug by and when and why, uh, only the records. And the German military records are generally superb. Um, so we're really hopeful of getting some answers from there about what actually went off in there. We can surmise with a fair deal of confidence, but it will be really nice to have it confirmed. Any new information on uh, locating that tunnel used by the British uh, Royal Engineers? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it's okay. actually proving to be a little elusive. Um, I've worked on stuff that various tunneling companies have done um, and Almost without exception, they all left really good documentation and maps of what they'd done. They, they drew a map of their tunnel network. Unfortunately, because mm -hmm. the tunnel at Hawthorne is just one tunnel, it's not part of a network as such, they didn't leave a map. But what they did leave was a war diary. So uh -huh. we've been reading through the war diary. I actually have uh -huh. hard copied it, and I've got, I carry it around the all. And when I'm sitting in an airport lounge or something, I'll sit and read it because... <laughs> It's the only way you can get to grips with it. And once you learn the map referencing system, um, mm -hmm. you can sometimes get a clue from that. Because from trench maps, not today's maps, trench maps, it's a different grid system. I... Um, and then mm -hmm. we've had some information come from the Royal Engineers Archive. It's not very substantive, but there are clues in it. Um, and we've also got the chance of putting ground penetrating radar over the area. Um, very soon, actually, um, in about six weeks' time. Oh, awesome. And the uh, magnetometry should 
show us the shift in the earth density and there'll be a very definite marking where the shaft that leads down to what's we've got an idea we sort of know within about 50 where it should be from the water diaries we need to put the gpr over to try and pinpoint it and then we've got to get permission off the farm to just scrape two or three inches off the top with um, um, a digger and just pull it back and see if we can see mm -hmm. a definite change in the strata of the earth that will give us a clue it's it's going to be quite a long drawn out process but we're going to use as much technology as we can wow. and the people i mentioned before uav dynamics he's told us he's got some other software that might help and he's going to get onto that for us yep. so we have some new information but we haven't as yet pinpointed the exact location we found photographs believe it or not in the imperial war museum in london we spent hours trawling through these photographs of the tunnel and of the commanding officer sitting in the tunnel oh wow which was a bit of a shock wow but there he was captain rex trower sitting in the tunnel at hawthorne at beaumont hamill um, oh, wow. so those pictures are there so it's a it's a case of trawling through the archives so we've got the Royal Engineers Archive, we've got the Imperial War Museum, and we've also got the National Archive in London. So Andy and I, every spare minute, we, if we're in there, we will just dig around documents and photographs and whatever. Any little thing that will give us a clue, we grab it. And it's just a matter of joining the dots, really. Um, but I'm not going to walk away from that project till I've found the tunnel and until I've walked in it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's how determined I am. That is... I am going to find a tunnel. Oh my God! I, I, I can't wait to to hear when you find it because I I know you will. So it'll be on, is, it'll be on the television news. I can assure you. <laughs> that's great! Oh my God! That's so awesome. Um, and it, the the internet got a little a little shaky there for a minute. About how how close do you guys think you were again to actually finding it? Uh, I think we're within fifty feet radius. So you know, we, we, okay. it's a, it's a small enough area to be able to put the GPR rig over it, you know, because it's quite an expensive process. So it, it, we've got to be mm -hmm, fairly mm -hmm. close. We think, you know, we've looked at all these different maps. We've, we've coagulated about four different maps and we've kind of discounted some things through experience. And, and I think we're fairly close to knowing exactly where it is. You know, we'll keep working. Wow. <laughs> Too cool. Yeah. Awesome. And any, um, when we when we were there, you pointed out six very tightly spaced shell yeah. holes that I believe were located in the second crater. Um, do you by by any chance? I know it's only been a couple of weeks, but by any chance, do you have any new information on on what the the British um, artillery crew may have been looking for? Not as such, but what we've done, um, we've asked Ralph Whitehead and David Schiller to specifically look for fortifications or items that were built in that sector. Okay. Um, and then also we have a guy who knows an awful lot about artillery. We're going to get him. He's going out in October with us. Um, he's going to look at the fall of shot and the shape of those shell holes. And we're going to try and project them back. So that then will give us an approximate position from where they were fired because we'll know roughly what caliber they are. They're not 18 pounders, they're too big. So they're either going to be 4.5, 6 okay. inch or 9.2s. So Richard will be able to back project that and okay. tell us roughly where that gun battery was 
Once we know that, we can go into the Royal Artillery records, find out which unit was in that location, pull up that unit's war diary, and find out what they were firing at. <laughs> so it's, it's like working backwards. And again, wow. it's, it's, you know, history in reverse. Wow, yeah, we're, yeah. We're starting from the end point and trying to find the initiation point and what the reasoning behind it was. And now the 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 crater was up until very recently it was all overgrown and there are trees and brush growing in there now does that actually help preserve the crater correct uh, it does um but the reason we've cleared the front part is because a lot of those trees were diseased and they okay. were growing very close to the lip and their roots were damaging the lip i see um, so we took, it was a difficult decision, um, and a fairly controversial decision, I have to say, to remove some of the trees. But we made, I think, the right call in only removing the diseased or the ones that were endangering possible archaeology. Because once archaeology is destroyed, either by natural means or artificial means, it's gone forever. Mm -hmm. So it right, was important right. that we acted fairly swiftly. We took the minimum number of trees out we could. We've got two more diseased trees to come out at the back, and that is it. All the rest are staying in because they act as a bit of a windbreak and they, they prevent some of the erosion. Mm -hmm. um, but the ones that we've taken out were doing a lot of damage root-wise. Um, when we dug the forward observation point, oh, we had six-inch diameter roots going straight across it, and the archaeologists were having to work around those. So... We take now the minimum that we can, and the, the upside of that is that it's actually allowed people now to see how vast the crater actually is. People used to go, yeah, it's a big hole, but that was all they could say because they couldn't see the limits of it. We've got, we've got tour guides who've been taking people there for 25 years and had no right. idea how big the crater was, and now they're going, wow, what is this? And then it's, it's almost like it's never been seen before. So for us, we we feel completely vindicated in that decision of some trees. Well, it um in you know re researching um, you know sites on the Somme to to go visit and everything. Um, I didn't. I saw you know obviously you see a lot about Loch Nagar, but um, but I I remember you know like not seeing anything about the Hawthorne Crater, and I was always thinking like why has it was it filled in? Was it is it gone? Is it just not there anymore? Um, my friend Clint said that um, he he had visited it and it was all completely overgrown. Um, so I always thought that was that was amazing. And then like then we we get to go see and like oh wow like this is a huge huge yeah. crater. It I mean, is it's, huge. Uh, and the thing is, I'm glad you mentioned Finn because Francis told us that 15 years ago him and his brothers looked at the possibility of filling mm -hmm. it. Oh wow. <laughs> I'm kind of glad he didn't. Yeah, same. same. <laughs> that would have been a lot of digging. Yeah. <laughs> Get 20,000 tonnes of earth out of that hole again. Oof, no. Because there was a crater wow. at um, the village where Loch Nagar is, La Boiselle. There was another crater there, the same size as Loch Nagar, and that mm -hmm. was filled in in the 1970s. Oh, really? Oh. And they built, they built two houses on it. Oh. Which have since been rebuilt because they started to collapse. Oh, because the ground wasn't stable enough. Oh wow! So they've since had to wow. put piles in and rebuild them. But yeah, the Wysat crater was filled in in the 1970s. So you know wow. we need to preserve as many of these things as we can. And the beauty is on the Somme, 
they don't fill with water. If you go into Belgium, all the craters there are full of water because it's very low-lying land. But on the I Somme, see. it's fairly high land. It's chalk. It drains really well. So the craters are still wow. there. Wow, amazing. And now, um, what? this is actually great what, what you just mentioned. Like, what? what is your... What is your hope? What is your goal? And what is the Hawthorne Crater Association's goal in clearing and studying that that crater itself? It, it's a multifaceted outlook with us. Um, the first one, and strangely, I think the most important one, is to make the thing more accessible to tour groups, tour parties, general visitors, solo visitors, whoever. Let's let people see this thing. You know, It's been like the hidden gem for too long. And some of the reaction mm-hmm. we've had so far uh, off very experienced tour guides like Reed, who's world famous tour guide. Yes, incredible. You know, they 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 cannot believe what they're seeing now. So for us, getting the people up there, which is why we paid to have. Well, we didn't pay for it. We we did it ourselves. We we actually supplied the materials and the labour to put all new steps in to get up there. The new fences, the new path substance, everything is in there for accessibility. The other thing is the crater story has never been fully explained. And we would like to think that we would be the people who could do this, whether it's in the form of um, something online or a printed small book or something. We've not even thought about it yet. But the story of the crater is so unique Mm -hmm. that somebody needs to get hold of it and drive that story and make sure that the suffering of the men who, A, died in the explosions and, B, died in the attacks, and never forgotten. And then that's the overriding thing. It's the memory and mm-hmm. respect of the fighting men. You know, it's a hole in the ground, but it's a hole in the ground that had enormous human consequences for a lot of people. And we should never, ever forget those people. Don't care whether they're British, German, French, not interested. If, if they fell during that battle, they must be remembered. Right. And the best way to remember them is to preserve the crater. And that's really why we're doing it. But we want to make sure that the story of the crater is given in as much accuracy as is possible. So there is no doubt or dubiety about what happened there and the reasons for it and the aftermath from it. Let's have the story out in the open, properly researched and available to everybody. Oh, amazing. Oh, that's, that's really, really a very, very noble very noble cause. That's amazing. Um, so I, I guess the um, final final question here, Mr. Wynn, is um, the Hawthorne Creator Association, how can someone support it? How can someone join it if, if, that's, if that's a possibility? How, how, can, we, how can we do that? It, it is a, it's a definite possibility. Um, we are having a, a website built. It's under construction at the moment. But in the interim, we have a Twitter feed which is okay. Hawthorne Ridge Crater Association. Um, you're on there, there's links to our membership secretary, Rick Smith, um, and you can join. It's 10 euros or 10 pounds or whatever that is in dollars a year. Um, and mm-hmm. on there, you'll be able to follow everything that we're doing. Uh, it's a carefully controlled Twitter feed. There's no uh, nonsense on there. It's very strictly controlled by Terry, who's the moderator for it. Um, and it, it completely gives an open view of everything okay. that we're doing. We're then going to build a website with the university, which is almost complete, and a separate linked website 
purely from, if you like, us non-university people. And they will be interactive um, with contact points and everything on. Um, but at the moment, it's purely on Twitter. It's updated almost oh. every day. Um, comments are extremely welcome. Okay. Um, and if people want to go along and have a look them there, it's just at Horford's Creator Association. And you'll find them there. there's lots and lots of photographs, flyovers with drones. We've done a lot of that. So you can see it before we start to clear after. And then we're going to put some of the scan details on when we've got them so people can see. We're not hiding anything. Too many of these projects get, oh, this is our little secret. No, we're not doing that. Everything that we find or learn, we put straight in the public domain. And we will welcome comments, questions, anything. This is a completely open and honest ideological dig. No secrets. No. We want it all out there in the public domain. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. So that's where we are. <laughs> Well, very cool. Well, when I um, when I get this episode um, put together and released here uh, within the next day or so, um, I will I'll have the links for for Twitter and and um, everything so that we can get uh, as, as much uh, exposure as we can. Um, yeah, that'd be great. And you know, and, and like anybody from states who decides to visit the battlefield, please come along and see us. You'll be more than welcome. Even if we're not there, just go and have a look. Just. Be prepared to be mind blown by it. But if we're there, it'll be exactly as when you turned up with your buddies, Mike. We'll make you welcome. We'll talk to you. You know, it's it's not a secret society. Come along. <laughs> so, so awesome. So awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Mr. Wynn, for, for taking the time out of your evening to, uh, to come on um, and um, just tell us so much. I, I'm, I, I think most folks will be pretty fascinated by everything that's going on. This is not just digging in the dirt, looking for relics. I mean, this is a huge, huge process. And, and, um, and I, and I don't mean to ever compare it to anything like that. I would, um, it, it's just so, so fascinating how, how big and how many pieces are, are involved in this project. Um, and, it, and again, it, it's just been so wonderful. Um, the, the, the time that, you and Mr. Robertshaw have, have given us um, both on, on at the crater itself and then here tonight. So thank you so, 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 so much. I'm very, very You are so welcome, Mike. It was an honor to meet you and it was great to have you on the site. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that discussion. And after listening, uh, I apologize for the no doubt excessive amounts of O's, oohs, ahs, and wows, but man, I was just talking to Colin Wynn, uh, one of the archaeologists on the Hawthorne Crater Project, so I was in my geek glory here. Um, anyway, please follow the Hawthorne Ridge Crater Association on Twitter to stay up to date, uh, and you can find them at, at Hawthorne Ridge CA. And Hawthorne is spelled H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N. More information on how to join the association will be provided uh, as it becomes available. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, And hey, thank you so much for listening. Uh, And talk to you again soon. Take care.